Welcome to Electronically Yours with Martin Ware. Hi, it's Martin Ware here, Electronically Yours. This is a special edition for Christmas. I've had a lot of requests for me to be interviewed, which I'm not going to do. But I thought the second best is for me to interview Glenn, which has also been requested a lot. Glenn Gregory from Heaven 17, my brother. Um, literally, we are like brothers. We couldn't be closer if we tried. We've had so many experiences together over the last 45 years. Um, I mean, I'm 65 now. No, I'm, I must have been 18 when I met him, so it's more than that. It's nearly 50 years. I'll have to figure out the exact date when we met. That's what I'll do. It must be close to our 50th anniversary when we met. And we've never had a falling out ever in 50 years, which is quite something. So this is an interesting talk, but of course, when you've had so much experience together, you can only really kind of skate over stuff. You'll have to buy my autobiography next year to hear the full story. But I just thought it was important to, you know, for Glenn to explain outside the context of Hem 17, you know, all the work, brilliant work he does, writing scores for TV, film, and different bands he's had, and, you know, he is a true artist in his own right, um, apart from Hem 17, and this needs to be acknowledged, and that's what this is all about, and it's a bit of a giggle as well, so enjoy it. Here he is, my best buddy, Glenn Gregory. Probably best, yeah. You're not naked, are you? No, I've got my frock on. Oh, what a pity we can't see that. You know, after all the requests from the from the ladies in Sheffield for you to wear your white trousers. Um, <laughs> the one, on the front row. I think it's the equivalent of a, you like a buxom wench. <laughs> <laughs> Every time I bent down to sing something, they kept shoving £10 notes in me back. <laughs> Uh, for those who don't know, this is um, my best buddy, Glenn, um, who uh, we, we're on tour at the moment. Uh, we're only doing kind of weekends, but uh, um, we always have such a laugh. Um, it's going really well. Don't you think, Glenn? Yeah, I think it's going really well. I, I really, really enjoyed those. I've, I've enjoyed them all, but the... The two uh, this weekend, obviously one was Hometown Sheffield, which was a, a belter, a, a, a club that we used to go to a lot and watch live bands back in the day. Um, and But Bir we played Birmingham on Friday and, and the audience just went crazy. It was brilliant, wasn't it? Yeah. Uh, Barry Noble's Roxy. Yeah. If you could see me, I'd be doing a thumbs up now. <laughs> oh, dear. Um, so... Um... Uh, how many more dates have we got? I've forgotten. Oh, don't don't ask me, Mark. I have no idea. Right, right. Get, when I ask you a question like that, you say, get the fucking tour book out. <laughs> uh, this, I, I'm planning to make this a special Christmas edition, by the way. So, um, mm, yeah, maybe we'll try, although not very successfully, to attenuate the amount of swearing. Uh, I just in case kids, well, you know. I 
put on my best Christmas non-swearing jumper. <laughs> I thought you were wearing a dress. I can't keep up. <laughs> um, okay, so let's start. Let's start this. We've had so many requests for me to interview you. I know it'll end up like a kind of two-way conversation anyway, like they all do. Um, and uh, so I thought that kind of intimate thing is very nice for a kind of cosy, good Lord, I need to get away from the family for an hour, uh, kind of going taking the dog for a walk type conversation. Um, so let's start with growing up in Sheffield, I suppose. Tell us about where you grew up. Um, I grew up in Sheffield in a, an area called Shire Green, Patchworth Park, which is um, towards the steelworks, towards the kind of east of Sheffield, um, by not far from where the M1 is. Uh, um, and um, I had a great time. I had a fantastic childhood, uh, lots of kind of family around, lots of fun. Um and yeah, I did, had a brilliant time. Started, didn't particularly enjoy school that much. Um, always kind of felt a little bit of an outsider at school. Uh, oh. Then, and then one day, then one. Well, I just was not. It, I, I was more interested in other things at that point. I thought I wanted to be an actor. Um, um, <laughs> in fact, when I went to my um, uh, careers advisor, you know, when you're yeah. as was. was we all did she said what do you want to do and i said well i, I want to work in the theater and she went oh 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 dear um <laughs> hang on a minute she said, let 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 me have a look she went she had like an old kind of card index thing and she was going through it and she went hmm how about this and she handed me a card and it was for an interview for trainee manager of the co-op and we all know uh, what's weird about that don't we Yes, exactly, because I, even though it was nothing to do with the theatre and it was the best she could come up with, I, I wish I could question her on that particular line of thought. But For those who don't know, I was also a training manager at the Co-op. And in fact, Glenn went on to go to the same branch that I'd just left. I didn't even know him at the time, which is really weird. Anyway. Yeah. Exactly. We were both trainee manager, which was really just shorthand for, you know, bacon and filling pills, really, wasn't it? Yeah, exactly. And uh, giving away cheese to pensioners and, you know, <laughs> <laughs> nicking biscuits from the stock room and, uh, and eating them. And, oh, God. We had, we had a, 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 a thing... Um, where yeah, of course you'd have met the same women. They all used to go to the staff room, and and they put they used to lay out fags for each other, didn't they? Yeah, it was very strange. You'd be in the staff room and you'd be sitting there with drinking your cup of tea, and they'd all come in one by one, and there would be like maybe eight or ten chairs around this table, and they'd put a cigarette in front of every chair, and then the next person come in, they'd put a cigarette behind <laughs> that. <cigarette. laughs> they'd have three or four cigarettes and they'd all individually come in and start smoking these cigarettes and they'd just go through like four or five fags in the tea break but they all had to individually give each one person a fag it was a very <laughs> odd thing there yeah let's talk about because um, you know my life didn't really start until I met you to be honest 
as you say in the live shows, you know, I was about 35 and you were 14. Yes. <laughs> I was seven. Yeah, exactly. Um, so tell us about Meat Whistle uh, and particularly before I joined, actually, because I didn't know that bit, obviously. What happened, what happened was I was mentioning that I felt a little bit of an outsider at school. And um, it, it was Hindhouse Comprehensive. It was massive school. Um, and they, at assembly one morning, I think I was in the fifth year, I think, um, the, the headmaster had read out without much um, interest from him or anybody else the fact that there was a theatre uh, workshop, I think they they called it, um, that was going to be held uh, in town. I've forgotten exactly where it was. Um, it might have been the art college or something. Anyway, it doesn't matter. And would anybody be interested uh, going? Then they were to come and see him and he, they could get further details. Oh, no, what he did, he said, can you, anybody that's interested in going, can they stand up? And <laughs> he kind of carried, he, he carried on speaking as if nobody was going to stand up. And I stood up. And he obviously hadn't before seen me, and he carried on talking about something else. And so there's about 500 kids, and I'm just stood up on my own. And one of the other teachers kind of drew his attention to this, and he went, "Yes, Gregory." <laughs> and um, and I said, well, "I'm interested, sir." And he said, "Interested in what, boy?" <laughs> well, you know. Just, <laughs> and so I, I kind of went to see him, and he said. He just thought I was kind of pulling some kind of scam, or he said, "It is at the weekend, you know. You don't get any time off school." And I went, "No, I'm just genuinely interested." And, and he, so he gave me the details. One funny thing about that guy, this is sorry, this is going back even further. When I first went to that school, he was the headmaster. I can't remember his name, but uh, we went to see the school with my mum and dad before I went. And as we were walking, as we walked in, suddenly this this voice, the headmaster said, "Oh no." <laughs> and we turned around and he went, not you. And he was my teacher at school. <laughs> and my dad had let him marry dance and absolutely made his life hell. And, he, and I was like, oh, thanks for that, Dad. That's a great start for me. But, um, he, he turned out all right. And, he did, and, so that, and that's when I then went to meet Whistle and met um, the people we still know now, Ian Reddington, Paul Bauer. Um, David Oxley, uh, just lots, lots of people, uh, and and they people from all over Sheffield, and it was to do with trying to get people interested in in the theatre, not only the uh, acting, but kind of uh, working backstage or, or writing or all that kind of thing, and it turned out to be absolutely the best thing that ever happened to me. It was run by Chris Wilkinson, Veronica Wilkinson, and, and a guy called Justin, and also someone called Roger DeWolf at the time. Um, and it, it was supposedly just kind of six-month thing or something that, that was culminating in a show at the Crucible Theatre in Sheffield uh, of a play called Marat Saad. And I was in Marat Saad. I was one of the four singers. Uh and that, that all happened and it was amazing and it was eye-opening and it was life-affirming and it was just brilliant. 
and met some of the best people I've ever met. Uh, and we had a great time. But then it was supposed to come to an end, but the people that ran it realised, I think, that, that, that they, they'd kind of clocked onto something bigger and, and more important. So they they they, they, they tried to, to find a building from the council. They, they got the council to kind of let them have a building, and they just we carried on, and it went on for for quite a few years and we would go there and we'd form bands we'd put on little wacky theater shows we it was just really a place of freedom and and fun really and it was great and that and then i met you i think paul bauer introduced me to you i don't know where you knew paul from but i think well, it was I paul. Went to at the cop didn't i oh yeah of course it was at the cop as well wasn't it yeah yeah i forgot that so actually, th th that woman that put me onto the co-op, she's probably saved my life. Yeah. <laughs> the co-op saved my life. I love that. Yeah. Um, and and that, and then you and I met, and I remember talking. We talked about music, and I remember talking to you about Brian Eno, uh, Roxy Music, and we kind of clicked on on the, on that. And then you very quickly became part of of that group, and. Um, and the rest is kind of history. We had loads of daft bands together and punk came along. We had parties and had fun. And and uh, we, we were in a band just then I, around that time, I decided to be, I think, how old was I then? Maybe it's 17, 18, decided, I think I was 17, decided that I was going to go to London and be a photographer. And uh, we had a big party and a send-off Um and and then I left, and and at that time, you and Ian had been working on um, instrumentals, kind of electronic instrumentals, because you bought that synth because uh, you had a job, um, and and I would, I think, probably have been the singer in that electronic band. You, you definitely would have been the first port of call, yeah. Yeah, exactly. But but I'd gone, and um, and then you you uh, you uttered those immortal words. I've got a friend at school. Um, I don't know if he can sing, but he's got a great haircut. And <laughs> and then you brought and then you brought Phil in, and that was it. <laughs> and that was it. That was it. Well, that's a lightning. That's a whistle stop tour through the most formative parts uh, part of our development. Really, um, it's all going to be um, explained in much greater detail in my autobiography, which is coming out next year. So, um, but there are lots of. I mean, we need just we can't we can't bypass that part of our lives without without a few more um anecdotes i think i mean <laughs> i was trying i know you're trying to avoid it but um the some of the parties we had in the workshop uh, where we recorded being boiled and we had a little studio there and lost people also had offices i mean some of those parties were completely off the hook weren't they brilliant they were fantastic parties and it, it was really good fun and and also because we were where that workshop was um was it, it there was no nobody lived there it was, it was an old kind of um, metal working uh, cutlery making factory and it you know there was no one around we could make as much noise as we wanted you got the human league studio there Addy from Top DVA had his little studio, and his and his uh, he lived there, and it was just we just used to have enormous fun. It was brilliant. And uh, what kind of girls did you like at that time? <laughs> All of them. <laughs> 
You had a predilection, didn't you? Come on. <laughs> I don't know what you're getting at. <laughs> you, de- well, you, you definitely like kind of punky girls, didn't you? Yeah, that was a little bit later on, actually. I think that, that was I think that was a little... Well, no, what time was that? It was around the road. Oh, 77, 77. Yeah. yeah, I like all girls. All girls, yeah. And um, it was filthy, the workshop, wasn't it? Oh, my God. It wasn't, some, wasn't somewhere you'd take your mum for a cup of tea, no, definitely no. It was horrible. Uh, I mean, from a, from a hygiene perspective, great from every other perspective. Outside toilets, oh, my God, they were grim. Um, and, um, yeah, I mean, we, round about, I mean, round about that period, we were, uh, shall we say, experimenting with lots of different things, as you do when you're a teenager, you're experimenting, not necessarily massively into drugs or anything, but um, definitely certain transgressional uh, kind of uh, relationship type things. But just fun, really, wasn't it? Yeah, it was just growing up, I guess. It's just good fun. Yeah. I mean, one of the main motivations for the workshop, as I remember it, was, you know, to kind of act as a magnet for for girls. <laughs> and, yeah, I think that's a lot of what being in a band's about at first, isn't it? It's just a way of being more popular with the sex of your choice really yeah exactly and um i'm just trying to dig a little deeper here um did you ever um did you ever do the deed at the workshop with any girls no i don't believe that for a second because if if i did you definitely did (laughs) i can't remember oh Fifth Amendment, I can't believe it. Okay, moving on. Um, so we might come back to that later when you've loosened up a bit. Uh, <laughs> um, so you were down in London. I was, yeah. I'd, I'd moved to London um, and but there was quite a few people just moving in and out of London at that time. Paul Bauer had gone with uh, Howard, Willie and... Uh, I think a little bit and Ad, and then Addy came down as well. They lived in a um, in King's Cross on Caledonian Road. And I was living in, uh, sharing a flat with two girls in Maida Vale, Karen and Kath. Right. Who I'm sure you um, And yeah, I was, and I was working uh, as a, in the theatre, as a stagehand in the theatre, but also, you know, to get money, but also I'd gone into, the NME officers and uh, and Sounds, which is a music magazine as well, um, and just said, "Hi, I'm a photographer. I take pictures of bands. Um, I'm from Sheffield, but I've moved down here now." And I showed them some work that I'd done, and they went, "Okay, yeah, all right. Well, I'll tell you what, we go and take some pictures of bands this weekend." And they gave me a list of gigs, and they said like four or five gigs, and I did, and I went and I took some and. Um, and they, so I, I just, I mean, it's just bought, it's just ballsy, really. I just went in and lied and said, yeah, I am a photographer and, uh, and, and started doing that. And so they started sending me on a few, um, gigs to take pictures. And then the Human League were playing at, um, uh, the limit. You were playing at the limit. And I came up to take pictures of you lot for the limit. And then the next day we went into this kind of steelworks area into kind of, um, put it at a cliff and up that way. 
and um, and Brightside. And we took loads of pictures. And then one of those pictures was on the front cover of Sounds magazine. Uh, yeah. Of you. It's a really nice photograph. And so that was really, that started, that got me even more work. And so I just started doing, started doing that. And in fact, I was doing that. I stopped, I stopped working in the theatre then. And I was just doing that full time, working as a photographer. And I came up to Sheffield to take pictures of Joe Jackson at the City Hall, who was playing at City Hall. And I called you and just coincidentally, it happened to be the same day that you'd had the meeting with the Human League and Bob Last. And uh, the band had split. You and Ian left. Phil and Adrian were going to carry on. And they'd got a tour coming up in two weeks or something. And and and, and anyway, you said we met in the Red Lion behind the City Hall. And we, got, we had quite a lot of pints of... Um, Ward's best bitter <laughs> and in the end I didn't even go and take uh, pictures of Joe Jackson because we just stayed and talked and got deeper deeper and deeper into things and then you just said to me would you be interested in coming back to Sheffield and uh, and starting a new band with with Ian and, and me and I and I you know I just thought oh fuck it yeah I'll do it um and so I, yeah, I did. I, I I went. That was on a Friday night, and I went back to London at the weekend. I packed a bag and came back to Sheffield on Sunday afternoon. Knocked on my mum and dad's door and said, "I'm I'm just back for a bit." And they're <laughs> like, "Oh, what's gone wrong?" And I, I was like, "No, nothing." <laughs> back to to being a band with, with Martin and in, and they were really supportive actually. Always, you know, right from the off, they were, and um, and that, and we started work on on that Monday, Monday night, and in five days, by the following Friday, we'd written and recorded Fascist Groove thing, and and that, and we were off and running. Then we were absolutely right. living it. And the first thing, actually, I think we did was. Um, I don't, you know, my memory's a little bit vague, but um, I think it might have been Wichita Lyman, wouldn't it, that we got you to see? Yeah. 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 We'd done the backing track to Wichita Lyman as a kind of experiment and thought, well, let's see what he does with this. And you knocked it out of the park, of course. And, um, yeah, so that was like both the BEF album and Penthouse and Pavement kind of started that week. It's yeah. incredible. Um because I was so furious. Oh, I was livid. I was. And um, all for the best. All for the best. Yeah, everything turns out for the best, doesn't it? So I just want to paint a little bit more of a picture. When you came back from London, you, you basically got all your belongings in a tidy handkerchief on a stick, right? Over your, <laughs> over your shoulder. Thank you. And a cat. I did ask bag, actually, but. Yeah. <laughs> Oh dear, dear. And right, just going back to London for a second before we leave this. You were in a band, weren't you? Uh, yeah, I was in a band at the time. Yeah, called Fifty Seven Men, and we'd played the limit just a couple of weeks before um, I went up and met you to join the Home Seventeen. And we'd kind of been playing around the South and London quite a bit, getting a bit of a following, um, and. But, but I, I just, you know, it, the, the, the draw of coming back up and, and doing something with my friends, you know, you two guys, was just too great. And so I said to to Jack and Nick and Darren and Lee, 
um, that, uh, that I was going to go and they were okay. You know, we, we weren't, there was no record deal or anything. We were just a kind of a, a, a gigging band. Of course, they then went on to become 50s. Uh, oh, no, sorry, that's what we were going. They became Huang Chung and had, you know, good hits in in America and still playing uh, today, actually. On- Darren, it wasn't Darren in Bow Wow Wow, was it Darren? No, Lee, Lee, Lee Gorman. Sorry, yeah, Lee. Lee Gorman bass player in Bow Wow Wow. Darren and and then Darren and Nick and Ian, uh, Nick and Jack went on to form Wang Chung and and yeah, and that was it was great. In fact, Darren's still working. He, he, he's been drumming with Bjork for ages now. So everyone, yeah, we're all still at it. Wow. And um, just again, before we leave London, just give us an insight into the you know your apart from being in a band i mean and and being a photographer i mean you you were moving in some interesting circles weren't you um we were just having you know it was just fun really i mean we had a i had a flat on labrook grove um and it it was it was weird because it was a basement flat and it had um big iron bars in front of the window there's a lot of places doing London, I, i guess you know to stop people thieving um but I used to get a bit worried about it because it was quite a, it was a pretty d- disgusting place, really. You know, it had, uh, let me just think, hang on, one, two, three, four, five. There were five flats and it only had one toilet and one bath. Oh, shit. Um, it was, yeah, it really was really quite disgusting. Anyway, I decided that I was going to saw through one of these um, bars so I could remove it in case there was ever a fire. I said, if, if I'm, I'm buggered, if I get locked mm. in here. So, yeah. But very quickly, all my friends and their friends and some acquaintances <laughs> knew that this there was a way into this flat in, in Labbrook Grove. And I would constantly come home late to find people I didn't even know in my living room, you know, and oh yeah. <laughs> in fact, I'd got my mum and dad staying. And we'd been somewhere overnight and we'd come back and it was about nine in the morning and we came in and there was a really attractive Spanish girl in a, in a little white vest and her pants cooking corn on the cob in my kitchen. <laughs> and, I was, and she spoke no English. And I was like, um, you know, hi, I'm Glenn, I'm here with you. And she was, oh, hang on a minute, hang on a minute. And she went and got a boyfriend who spoke a bit of English. And apparently it was a friend, they were friends of Paul Bowers, who's still a really good friend of ours. And he'd um, he'd invited them over from Madrid and uh, decided to put them up at my flat because there was no one in that night. You know, he'd come around to see me, but there was no one in. So he said, oh, you can stay here. So he removed the iron bar, opened the window, unlocked the doors and let them all in. Wow. And that. I know, but it, people were always in and out of that flight. It was hilarious. I mean, you lot stayed as the human. Yeah. You know, when, whenever the human league played anywhere kind of near to the south, you all all stayed in that little flat, which yeah. which really was small. Wasn't it? Oh, <laughs> yeah, it was tiny. It was tiny, but you were very generous, and I'll always. Uh, it was known as the Sheffield Embassy, basically. It was, yeah, it was. Yeah. In fact, in that flat, that's where we wrote. Um, let me we, go. Yeah, let me go was written in that flat, and uh, come there with me. Yeah, so you know it's all. They should really have a plaque these days, shouldn't it? 
<laughs> yeah, we can make a cardboard one, colour it in. It'd be all right. Um, okay, so, I mean, you know, HEM-17 is well documented and, I, you know, we should dig it. I need to dig a bit deeper about about what you were thinking at the time because, you know, I often think about us as an entity, you know. Yeah. This is about you. And I just wondered if you thought it was your destiny to be a star. Um, I'm not really big on destiny or anything like that. You know I'm not. I'm just pretty much a day-by-day chap. <laughs> and um, I just I just was really enjoying the, the process. I was loving working with you and Ian, loving writing, loving traveling, um, you know, Love. We didn't actually play live at that point, but loving all the kind of TV appearances that we did because there was loads and loads of TV shows at that point uh, all over the world. We travelled everywhere. And we just used to... And I really did take it day by day and loved it. I've never felt any right to be where I am. I've never felt this is where I was going to end up. I don't ever know where I'm going to end up, uh, apart from on a tip somewhere at some point. <laughs> Well, how do you want to be buried, or not, or how? Uh, do you just no, I'm just, just burn me, just put, okay. put me, burn me. Okay, fair enough. Um, what would you like playing at your funeral? <laughs> um, I don't know. My, my dad always insists that he wants the laughing policeman, and he's made me the laughing police and I mean, my mum gets really angry but I'm sorry I'm gonna have to do it I've promised uh but me I'm yes um I don't know something oh I know what I'd like I'd like the Brighouse and Rastrick brass band to play come me <laughs> oh god I just had a funny thought you know maybe you could you could kill two birds with one stone if you know, you know, like we, we like doing cover versions of different things. Maybe we could do a cover version of um, The Laughing Policeman, but done in a really sad way. <laughs> quite good at it. <laughs> I quite like that. With really sad cuts and minor chords behind it and everything. Um, that's why I want a brass band doing Come There With Me, because no one can keep a dry eye when a brass band plays a sad tune. Yeah, I love brass bands, honestly. The best one. Yeah. You know, I think that I think it's some of the most thrilling musical experiences I've ever had is listening to that shit. I just think it's beautiful. I don't know, maybe it reminds... I don't know if it's the same with you, but maybe it reminds... It definitely reminds me of... You know, going out for a walk with my mum and dad when I was little and, and in, in, into town, and they'd, they'd have them on at Christmas, wouldn't they? Yeah. Uh, Salvation yeah. Army Brass Band and all that stuff. And uh, I know it's a cliche, and it's like, yeah, up with it's brass bands, you know. But it really is a, a soulful thing, I think. Yeah, very soulful. So there must be someone out there that's, that's listening to this, that's got a connection to a brass band, and can you just get them to do a, a version of Come Live With Me, please? Instrumental. When when I got my um, honorary doctorate from Queen Mary, University of London, 
dared a surprise at the end. I don't know if I ever told you this. They said, we've got a little surprise from, for Martin Ware, our new doctor of science, whatever it is. Um, a very special arrangement, organ arrangement, of a song that you might recognise. And it was like a completely avant-garde version of Temptation on, on a giant organ. It was really weird. Did you really I've got it somewhere. Have you ever heard it? Yes, I think I have heard it. Oh, yeah. It's fucking weird. Um, oh, sorry, it's Christmas. You are so... I think swearing-wise, it's 3-2 to you. Oh, all right, fair enough. It's a fair cop. Well, I'll put a parental advisory on the front. It's all right, don't worry. Um, so there we are. We're having lots of success. Uh, you were fucking gorgeous. I was more gorgeous than I realised at the time, but I didn't really have as much confidence as you. And you always got the girls. And... Um, <laughs> Sorry? You keep going on about girls. It's just because I've always been in, in your shadow regarding that. <laughs> <laughs> um, what was I going to say? So, we're, we're, we have a couple of major album successes and blah, blah, blah. I want to get on to... And it's, all that stuff's well documented. So, we get dropped by the label in 86. And it was a bit of a shock, wasn't it? So... Uh, Fortunately, I had already had a burgeoning kind of production career. And so I had something to fall back on. Still an enormous shock. And then uh, what? Uh, and we decided to take a, a sabbatical, didn't we? I suppose that's the way. How did you view it? Um, yeah, I just viewed it that it, it, we'd kind of um, weren't being as interesting as we had been in the past. And it was a bit, it was a slightly rudderless. So uh, I thought it was good, but we never did. I never kind of wanted to. We never ever even talked about splitting up or not. You know, that never came to. It was just let's just not do anything for a bit. Let's try and just see, and we'll see what happens. And um, and and as you said, we we went. Everybody went off and did other things. I was working with um, John Urie at a band called Ugly. Um, who, were they, who were they signed to? I can't remember. Uh, to, um, oh gosh, I've forgotten what the label's called. Um, it, it's gone. I've forgotten yeah. who it is. Um, you had a single anyway. called Boom the Future, didn't you? Yeah, I had a single out called Boom the Future. We're doing that. And it was around just after that, actually, that time that I, I first did um, st started doing a scoring thing. It was just a, someone... Uh, James Strong, who's now a really good friend, he was making his first short film. And uh, he, we'd kind of met through a, a, a mutual friend and he um, liked Heaven 17 music. And he said to me, would you score this short film for me? And it was called Sold. And it had Roland Riveron in it. And it was really good. It was excellent. It was about this, Roland Riveron played a... Uh, an estate agent, quite a bad, you know, um, uh, angry estate agent, and and if he, he, he kind of if he got kind of so far down the line with his sales and it didn't work and it fell through, he would take them to this house, which was I forgot what number it was, but it was on Burnt Tree Avenue. And I remember that, and basically he'd kill them. He'd like kind of tie them up. It was really dark. For 
and he'd tie them up and he'd tell them what was wrong with them and then he'd shoot them in the head. Um, and it was really good <laughs> film. And I, yeah, and it was very dark kind of scoring and, and I did that and I really enjoyed it. But it also had just, it had this really brilliant uh, kind of really happy song at the end called Soul. It was almost like a madness song, but it was really good. Um, I wonder if I've still got that anyway. Anyway, um, and but that was the so I did that, and that was my first kind of introduction into into writing music for TV and film, and and so that yeah, and that's what I started doing then, and I've been still doing it now. In fact, I'm sat in front of my computer doing it at this very moment. Right. Um, just going back a little bit, when Ian decided not to do BEF anymore, yeah. Um, I remember asking you if you wanted to take his place, and he said, "No, I can't be bothered." Yeah, <laughs> yeah. yeah. And then just before I took on Tina too, <laughs> and I, yeah. thought, I thought that went well. Uh, I can hell, you could have ended up as rich as me. Uh, no, right time. No, I, I like my favourite bit about all this music stuff is creating hmm. and being in the studio and writing, and um, th that's what I really love. I mean, and I love performing and it's great. And it's almost like a kind of holiday when I do that, you know, when we do, when we yeah. go on tour. It's just pure joy. But for for satisfaction of soul, I, I love sitting here in the studio in the dark, which is where I, they all, my wife and son call me the Lord, the dark Lord, because I just sit down there, I never have any lights on, and all the doors and windows are blinded. Prince, Prince of Darkness. Uh, yes. Um, and, and that's where I, that's 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 what I like doing. So the the, the idea of kind of uh, doing other people's um, other people didn't really didn't really attract me as much. I mean, and you're and you love it, and I, and I just thought it, I I'd just be along for the ride if I did it. So I said no. Okay, fair enough. Um, but what I find interesting is. That you're really good at the the uh, the soundtrack stuff, and you've got obviously got a you completely it's your wheelhouse now, as they say in America. You you, you know exactly what you're doing. You you're very experienced. Um, but the thing is, you as part of that process, because I've done a little bit of it, nothing like as much as you, is you you are very good at um you know being a diplomat and negotiating with people and possibly even getting them around to your point of view and doing all that stuff and people enjoy being in your company you know the the uh, and i think that's as you know it's an important part of it all i keep saying this to my students because i teach them about you know different ways of earning money in the music industry and it's it's as much about your personality and reaching out and being open um, and and being a bit of a diplomat. Do you agree? Um, I think so, yeah. Uh, it, yes, it's important. I mean, especially when you're starting out, you've got to kind of – you've got two ways of doing it. You've got to be so absolutely brilliant that everybody wants you and you tell them all to go away and then they'll want you more. Or, and believe me, this is the easiest <laughs> And quicker route. You just got to kind of get on with people and and work with people and be able to um, to interpret their ideas because quite often 
the, the, the director or the producer or the writer that you're working with might not have that kind of musical language that you have or that you, you know, you, you've gathered throughout your career, you know. And you have to kind of read people and what they mean. You know, they, they quite often, if you just let it go, you just walk away thinking, I have no idea what that person was talking about. But really you've got to dig down and you've got to think, okay, then they are meaning something. They're not, they're not just spouting off for the sake of it. So you have to kind of interpret what they're talking about. And mm. I am quite good at, at realizing ideas that people try and explain to you without actually doing it very well. And quite often then I'll go back to people and play something and, and they're just blown away and they're going, that's, exactly what i meant and i want to say to them but that's nothing what you said <laughs> yeah. Yeah. and also there's a there's a whole culture about people they don't do deliberately it's just human nature that they tend to take credit for stuff if it works out and they tend to distance themselves if it's not quite what they want but anyway that's another thing tell us about honey root how that came about um well honey root was uh, came about from a project with it came back from a drink in the Lansdowne, actually, which is just when I come from where you used to live. And I'd gone in there one sunny afternoon, and John McGeoch was in there, and the guitarist John McGeoch. Uh, and obviously, we've known John for a long time, and, and but he, I hadn't seen him in, oh, I don't know, maybe 15 years or something. And so it was lovely to see him. I always liked him. One of the funniest guys you've ever met. Uh, one of the best guitarists you've ever met. Um, a, raging alcoholic but just such good scottish fun with it as well you know and and we started talking and he was with these other two guys a guy called clive and a guy called keith uh and a chap called simon lowe who coincidentally used to live across the road from me so we'd kind of nodded at each other uh and they were talking they were having a meeting because they were forming this band as yet unnamed and they were looking for a vocalist uh, and john was kind of asking me lots of questions about what I was doing and I was kind of doing, I'm doing a bit of this, bit of that and writing for TV at the moment. And uh, and the next day he we swapped numbers and the next day he called me up and he said, look, do you fancy coming, because John lived in Drumfield just outside Sheffield. He said, do you fancy coming up? And uh, it sounded like you invited me up for M17. Yeah. Um, and just, just having a listen and a chat and, and come up with Simon, he'll drive you up and see what's doing and so i did i went up and it was really good it was kind of it's kind of rocky but electronic and a bit of dance as well and and the the guy that was programming it all that's of it's called keith lowndes and he was a, a much younger he was a youngster you know he was uh probably 10 or 15 years younger than me um and we got on really really well the whole project lasted for about a year and a half. We had great fun. We wrote some really, really good songs. Very nearly got signed for quite a lot of money, but didn't. And then it all felt, it, it became untenable, really. John was drinking a lot and it was kind of weird. Uh, so I had to make a, a can't keep coming up and doing it. And I hated doing it because he was really, really, really angry and, and didn't. Oh, no. I know, and didn't understand what I was saying, but it wasn't, wasn't going to work. Anyway, uh, but um, Keith Lowndes, who lived in Camden as well, we used, we used to travel up, up and down together to Dromfield. We'd got a, quite a good relationship and worked really well and enjoyed the same kind of music. So we, we started 
he would then work with me on the kind of TV side. Of and and as we were writing all this kind of TV stuff, occasionally you, you come across something that you're working on, you think, oh, that's really nice. I'm, I'm going to keep that. We'll do something with that. And after about kind of seven or eight months of working like that, you realise, actually, there's an album here. You know, there's mm-hmm. something. Yeah, you know, let's let's concentrate on this for a bit. So we did, and um, and then we contacted a label called Just Music, who was uh, uh, run by um, uh, husband and wife called uh, John uh, John and Serena. They were, uh, yeah. and they were really lovely people. They just cared about music. They got a great label. It's kind of chill out label, and they really wanted to sign Honeyroot, and so we did. And Honeyroot again was great because it got we got loads of adverts from the it's that kind of it was really very easy placeable music for film and tv we had honey root songs in sex in the city and like really quite big american programs uh as well as we did adverts <coughs> excuse me we did adverts for um sky tv and we did lots we did on guinness and lots of stuff it was great and then but Keith um, was taking a bit, bit too many, you know, enhancements, enhancements. Uh, and I and and he got later and later. He was one of those people that could come, you know, two days late for a meeting, and um, and the, the the final. I remember the final time when I just had enough because I'm not great. I don't really accept people being late anyway. I don't like it. it annoys me. Um, We've been in the studio all day, and then we've got a meeting with the director, head of Channel Four uh, drama. We just uh, we just scored this drama, um, and we were going to the studio to watch the last episode. Then we were going to So House for a meal, and I said, to, and we were in the studio together. I said, right, I'm going to um, get a bike over there because I like riding a bike. And Keith said, well, I'm just going to go home, have a shower, and I'll meet you there in the studio in an hour. So off I went. So I'm in the studio, and pretty much every time we'd arranged to go in the studio, Keith would never turn to, to the edit suite, sorry. Keith would, would be late or not turn up, and it was to such an extent that the director would say, there is no Keith Lounge, is there? You're just, it's just you. You're just kind of using him as a, as a pawn. And I was like, no, honestly, he'll definitely be here. He's def- I just saw him an hour ago. He's on his way. But we didn't, so I'm, and I'm saying, oh, he'll come. So we wait an hour, and the, you know, the head of Channel 4 is sitting there tapping his fingers, you know. <laughs> and I said, okay, bugger it. Let's just go. You know, we'll, I'll leave a note with the security guy on the door, and, and if he comes, he can come and join us. So we leave, and um, and I, and as we go, I, I realised his, his bike was locked up outside. And I thought, well, that's weird. I wonder if he's had an accident or something. So I asked the security guard, I said, is there a guy kind of, you know, yay high, or the, but kind of growth, skinny guy? And he went, oh, yeah, he did come in about 25 minutes ago. So I said to the guys, oh, look, can I just can we have a walk around the building? Maybe he's got lost or something. I'm like, <laughs> so they're going all back. And I couldn't find him anywhere. And I said, oh, I'm really so really embarrassing. And we went out and had the night and that was it. And as I left about 11 o'clock, I phoned his girlfriend and she said, uh, I said, is Keith there? And she went, uh, yeah, he's, he's just he's gone for a shower. I said, well, what happened? She went, well, he came in. Didn't he come to meet you? 
I mean, yeah, he did, but he didn't turn up. I went, well, that's weird. He said he's, he's been with you. Uh, and so that was just another incident of mm. him, you know, doing whatever he was doing and, and it failing us. So that was it. I couldn't, I said, that's it now. I can't do it anymore. Yeah. So then I took Keith adrift and I was on my own again. And then I carried on working on TV for about uh, a year and a half, two years on my own scoring. And like I said, I'm in the dark here. And I'd actually, I think I was going mad. I was starting to talk to him. <laughs> but not only talk to myself, answer myself quite a lot. And sometimes I argue with myself. And, and I don't mean in my head. I mean talking to myself, actually <laughs> talking. I thought, oh, this is really weird. And by that time, we'd started working with uh, Berenice as a keyboard player. And... Um, and, and for the listeners, Berenice is Berenice Scott, who's the daughter of Robin Scott from M. Yeah, that's right. And she played keys with us. Yeah. And then I was doing a, an ad for, I can't remember what it was, but I needed a, a kind of light, a female vocal. And I asked Berenice if she'd come and do it because she's got a beautiful, amazing voice. Um, and she did. And she came in and we got on, we've been getting on really well, you know, work-wise and then we started and I said would you be interested in because she's such a fantastic keyboard player as well and like programming keyboard parts for me is more of a kind of mental arithmetic than yeah. um, but I thought it'd be really nice to have someone with that uh, skill you know uh, and she said she'd love to and she'd always wanted to work in kind of TV and stuff as well so we started working together a little bit and then we then became uh, and we then became after here and we started working on um we d doing scoring as after here and and that's kind of where we are now really that's what i'm still doing so that was a funny route through to after here yeah. it, it sounded like it was really quick but it was about three and a half four years all yeah. that happened you know there was a lot going on so how many how many big scoring projects have you done now do you think um I, do you know what? I've, I don't know, but it's quite a lot. Um, I, I mean, I've, I, I forget because I used to do I was doing it before Louis was born because I used to have my studio in the house. And then my studio moved, I moved to the bottom, had it built at the bottom of the garden when he came along. So I've been doing it 18 years, over 18 years. Wow. So, so really quite a lot. There's lots of stuff. Uh, I mean, here's a lesson for everybody listening. Um, you know, if you want to get into this stuff, <clears throat> it's a it's a very popular field, so it's not easy to get into. But, but um, I mean, neither myself nor Glenn can read or write music. Well, we've picked up a certain amount, but you know, we, that's not our, our method of operating. Um, so, it, if you believe in you, you believe in the fact that you've got a, a, a good ear for music. And, and and you can you can articulate emotions within you know to picture. There's no reason why you shouldn't have a crack at it, really. No, I mean I watched I watched a really interesting thing um, uh, the other day, and 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 people would you know big composers, you know, and they were saying, look, you can do all this on an iPad. You could do this on an iPad, uh, and obviously. I, I mean, I don't do it on an iPad, but these days you can. You can really just try and do stuff. And you can also make a film on your phone. You know, you, you mm. do, out and do it yourself. If you want to do it, just shoot something. It's so easy now. That, you know, it's 
just just make it happen. I wonder what sort of um, stuff we'd have got up to if we'd have had this technology when we were together at Meat Whistle, you know. Because we will make it. We were even experimenting with like eight millimeter stuff and early video stuff, weren't we? Oh yeah, definitely. Yeah, we were sending uh, we were sending off Super Eight film all the time, weren't we, to be developed yeah. and, to, and and making stuff ourselves. Um, I had an early uh, video camera, and we were doing deaf things like Pink Peter. Do you remember that? Yeah, I remember <laughs> making the. Um, a present for John Lydon, um, who we were friends with. And and we were in the studio recording, I've forgotten which album, maybe How Men Are, I think. <clears throat> and and I went out on, on the street and I pretended to be from a programme called The Wild World of Pop. <laughs> I remember this. It's great. And I, I was pops, right? Yeah. But, and I'd got a microphone and I was stopping people and... and <laughs> Did, did, did you know it was John Lydon's birthday today? Would you mind recording him a little message? And it was hilarious. Some people were, were disgusted by John Lydon and Johnny Rotten, you know, and they were telling him to F off and other people were get singing out. And we cut all this together and made an actual programme and, and we sent it to John for his birthday. And I know that he's still got that video. Oh, I'd love to see that. That's got to yeah. be hilarious. Good Lord. There's that fantastic photo of you, of, of him um, with your mum sat on my settee in Notting Hill uh, when we were watching Wednesday play Arsenal in the FA Cup final in 93, uh, which we lost, of course. And uh, as usual, well, maybe that was the draw. No, I was at all those games, so I don't know why that, how that came about. Anyway, John Lydon was sat with his Arsenal shirt on. Your mum was there with a Wednesday shirt on. It was very funny. Um, so what's you know what are we doing next? That's the question. We're getting this is flown. It's fifty five minutes in. I'm going to ask you some uh, deaf questions soon. You know the um, your favourite things and all that. But uh, what are we doing next? Uh, I don't know. I mean, I saw um, I saw a post on um, social media the other day, and someone had posted. Um, those few 12 inch vinyl records that we released prey and whatever the other one was captured. called captured yeah and um and they were saying that they absolutely loved those records and it, it was about time that we wrote something else i mean and you and i both feel the same about writing things at the, at the moment it's kind of i don't know i, I kind of feel it it felt not worthwhile i think at that time but i mean since then there's been a lot of records come out you know soft cell and mm. OMD and and bands like that and tears for fears you know i mean that's so maybe it is time that we should get back to get in the studio and write and, and actually do something so maybe that is what's next yeah i think the timing is is better now it seems like is. Seemed like shouting into the wilderness back then because the the whole, you know, it's you can't make any money out of digital release, so we decided to do it all on vinyl. Uh, but I think, you know, I I don't I, I think I'm like you. I don't want to do it for the sake of it. I want to do it because uh, we feel enthused about it. So yeah, um, and 
maybe it's about time. It's just about timing. I mean, most things are in your career it's, uh, sooner or later. I mean, it wouldn't take that much for us to finish an album, really. We only need to do another four, five tracks, perhaps. Yeah, but there is there they're kind of half half finished, aren't they? You know. Yeah, yeah. I mean, the, the tracks we've already done are good. You know, they're they're of the required standard. Why I always explain to people when I'm when I'm being interviewed is. Um, we don't want to put out some, anything that's inferior or feels like it's just been kind of knocked up. Um, it's got to be um, something that we um, are happy with, from both from a, a kind of songwriting perspective and from a technical perspective. And and also the other stars that have to be in alignment is, is there an appetite for it, you know? I, I know, that's, that's what I always... That's what I always feel because there's very little point in you and I um, spending six months finishing off, you know, a, yeah. a new a, an album if if ten people are going to listen to it, you know, because exactly. we both do things and it's not, uh, you know, and we both got to pay the mortgage and exactly. you know, so you got to get paid. Anyway, let's let's uh, readdress this. We'll talk about it for the rest of the tour. And uh, and see how it is. And uh, what's happening next for um, after here? Uh, well, at the moment we are um, working on a new series for ITV called The Suspect, uh, which has got about another uh, another week filming the first block, which is the first three episodes, and then the, then that's will be, um, being started editing. So we start really working in. That um, there are songs that are finished after new after year songs. Um, we considered just putting them out just as little songs, but I think we've decided we're going to wait and do an, and finish another album. And it's slightly more, slightly heavier than the first album, and it's uh, it's it's going to be good. Good. And um, oh yeah, so tell so yeah, of course. Holy holy, we've not even talked about that. So uh, tell us about your forthcoming tour. Uh, yeah, there's another Holy Holy tour. Holy Holy is um, the name uh, of the band that was formed with Tony Visconti and Woody Woodmansey, um, <clears throat> along with James Stevens and Paul Cudderford, Jessica Lee Morgan. Uh, and it, they play... Uh, they it, it was put together because Woody wanted to tour the man who sold the world live which is something they'd never done with david they'd never done that whole album in its entirety uh, so that's how it became a thing and i was asked um to to be the singer uh for it which was amazing i mean it was just i was just right place right time uh for that and um <clears throat> And so that that all that happened. We've we've toured America twice extensively, you know, like kind of six week tours, traveling all over the place. Found it very tiring, but good fun on stage. Love the on stage bit. It's a great band, really good. If you go and see Holy Holy, which I suggest you do, because it's like going to a gig in 1975. <laughs> it's proper. It's that you know, there's not a computer in the building. There's it's proper rock and roll you know it's all absolutely full on live and loud and i really enjoy it and it's they're hard songs to learn they're hard songs to sing uh but it's certainly keeping me fit and uh, and i'm really enjoying it and yes we start touring um kind of early next year 
Fantastic. I, I suggest that you've turned into a rock god since you stopped performing with Holy Holy. Uh, your your uh, your stagecraft and your stage presence has become amplified by the confidence that you've derived from working with such amazing musicians and and uh, and it's 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 been a thing of beauty to 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 see and it's definitely helped Heaven Seventeen's performance. I think. Um, what helped my helped my voice, my voice as well. I mean, it's it's you know do, doing something like that. Like the shows are kind of nigh on two hours. And it's proper, like I said, you know, it's all Bowie stuff, kind of reasonably early Bowie stuff. And it's just, and, and certainly touring, Amer- you know, going, doing kind of eight week long tours in America. It, it, it's really, it really is getting your chops together. It's fantastic. Yeah. It really uh, I must say that when I spoke to Tony Visconti on this podcast, and I was discussing you, he said that you, you were his first choice. To do the Bowie, yeah. to do the Bowie part, which I think that's that's got to be one of the highest accolades you could possibly have received. I think. Yeah, totally. And one of the other one, one, one of my highest personal little moments was, I got a phone call from, from Tony uh, oh, before David had died. Before David died, um, and, and he said, "Glenn, I just want to tell you that." Um, We'd done a, there'd been a video shot of the, the song, The Man Who Sold the World, of us playing it live at Shepherd's Bush Empire. And it's a great video uh, and it sounds fantastic. And he said, I'm here with David now. He's dancing around the room and he just wanted, and he's just said, It's so nice to hear someone sing my songs how they were supposed to be sung. Oh. And Tony said that to me whilst David was dancing around the room listening to me sing The Man Who Sold the World. So that's a little personal high point for me oh, in my life. Well, I've never heard that story, so that's a really beautiful thing to hear. Um, so before we leave the Heaven 17 thing, um, we are touring next year in Germany. We're still <laughs> debating whether, whether we can uh, make it work to go to America. Um, we're definitely going to be doing some more touring in the UK next year. We've got lots of festivals and stuff lined up. So all that's cracking on, isn't it, Glenn? We're all- yes, absolutely. It's really good. And, and, and I think, as you, you know, as you just said, my kind of craft has, um, has become honed during Holy Holy. It's also become honed during the, the amount of 17 gigs we've been doing. Yeah, and I- a lot. Really now, we're, we're, we're really not bad. Yeah, I think we can say that. I think we deliver a show. That's what we do. And uh, and the girls all deserve, you know, Kelly, Rachel, Haley, Flo, our new keyboard player. They all deserve, and and not all our production team, Mark Wiles and uh, Dan, our sound man, and Martin, uh, Martin, Martin Lights are fantastic. They all deserve enormous credit. It's not just us, definitely. Um so that's that, and we're going to finish with the my favourite things kind of thing. One sec. What's your favourite film? Um, the Shining. Ooh, nice. Great soundtrack, isn't it? Fucking great. Yeah. Um, yeah. TV. Sorry. My favourite soundtrack is Taxi Driver. Yeah, that's brilliant. Bernard Herrmann, yeah. Um, TV. Past, present, box set. TV. Um, I don't have a TV. You know that. I don't watch TV. I haven't 
TV now for over 10 years. <laughs> so, yeah. So I don't watch a lot of TV. My favourite TV, what would my favourite TV be? Um, God, that's really difficult. I don't really like a lot of TV. Uh, Back in the day, any, any classics from the past? Um, I... I, I had a man from Uncle card. I always wanted to be. <laughs> uncle. You know, the thing about that is on the back, if you don't know what Man from Uncle was, it was a TV series in the late 60s, was it? I would yeah. guess. Robert Vaughan and oh, what was the other guy called? I've forgotten his name. But you could become a kind of, I guess it was a fan club type thing. And so I did. And, and it sent this card and it, had a, and it had a picture of a Cadillac on the front. And it said, man from uncle. And then on the back, it said, if we ever need you for a mission, we have the right ball on you at any time. And I was thinking of bed every night for five years. And every couple went past, I thought, it's them. It's them. <laughs> We were to do that with our, with our uh, fan club. We'd say, you know, we may need you to come sing with us at any moment. Yeah. Um, favourite book? Uh, favourite book? I know you're quite a reader, actually, because you, you, you are genuinely, you are a very profound character. <laughs> I think my favourite book is still... And has been for a really long time. The Tin Drum. Yeah, yeah. It's a really, really, really good, excellent story. Yeah. Um, epiphanal moment. <laughs> well, one that you know, a turning point in your life, or a moment of realization. Uh, um, God, I don't really know that. A light bulb moment. Anything. I know, I know, I know, I know. I know what you're saying. That's just I have to. I have them all the time, right. <laughs> regularly. I'm like, oh shit, that's what it means. I do remember once, although I've forgotten, being so. There's a book, a William Burroughs book called Cities of the Red Knight, which is quite impossible to kind of decipher, really. And I remember one one night waking up and. And having an absolute, that moment, that epiphany of understanding what this book was about. Wow. And I was like, oh, my God, that's that's it. That's it. That's it. And then I went back to sleep and I woke up and I'd forgotten. It had oh, gone. Wow. It did. Now, I don't know whether I dreamt the fact that I understood the book in its entirety or whether I really did. But I had that one moment feeling of absolute clarity that I knew everything about what was going on in that book and then it left me. So I do quite often think, I wonder if that'll ever come back to me, that that, that understanding. <laughs> and that's as near as I'm going to get. Okay. Um, which other musical artist or composer or whatever do you like? I mean, which is your favourite? Um, I mean, obviously... Um, Bowie, because just from growing up and and that uh, you know and, and listening to them and and indeed I guess he has influenced the way I sing, if not directly, certainly kind of just from listening and going in. But I'd say two, I'd say equally, um, Roxy Music and David Bowie for me. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Roxy Music were a big change for all of us. Yeah. Um, visual artist. Who's your favourite visual artist? Or, or conceptual artist? 
God, only... Um, I don't know. I mean, in a, in a, in a way, I suppose I'd, I've always been an admirer of the work that Malcolm Garrett does, actually. Oh. I mean, no, I really mean it. I really mean it. It's, he's... I know we work with him a lot and on record season that, but I've, I've always absolutely admired his his vision and his and his constant vision as well. Actually, he's, he's kind of unchanging um, the way that he works. Uh, so I'm I'm going with Malcolm Garrett. I love that. I love my God. It'll right really go to his head. Um, <laughs> if you're listening, Malcolm, I didn't mean it. It's a joke. Um, okay. Um, finally, what's your favourite synth? My favourite synth, well, is can be absolutely no doubt which my favourite synth is, and it's the one that's on stage with us at the at the moment. Your 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 seven hundred F, yeah, your seven hundred, which you wrote being boiled on. Every time you play that, it nearly makes me cry, and I'm not joking. I'm not. <laughs> that's not lie. It, it's emotional that you know the the way that synth sounds it's like a Stradivarius or something it sounds amazing I mean you've got we've all played modern synths mm-hmm. and they're, and they're really attractive sounds and they're sometimes made I think to sound a little too attractive when you first play them you think oh that's brilliant that's amazing but then you try and incorporate that within a, a piece and you think oh god it's doing too much or it's <laughs> you know it's Thing. That synth sounds bigger, fatter, mm. sexier, more loving, more, I don't know, in a weird way, more human yeah. than, than, than really a lot else. It's a beautiful sounding it thing. Is, it is. A, there was a funny thing on the weekend in Sheffield, and, uh, you know, we kind of incorporated it into the kind of stage show during being boiled to play a little bit before the song starts. And I was playing the, a few notes. And there was a woman on the front row whose jaw I mean, <laughs> stood there like with her mouth open, going, whoa, you know. And it, it it's just not, it's not about volume. It's about the, it's really hard to describe, isn't it? It's it's just the, the, sh- the solidity of it is just, just, it's thrilling anyway. Um, that's that's that. Well, Glenn, um, it feels like we've only, only been sat in a pub for ten minutes drinking a pint of wards, but um, um, I'm sure there'll be more of this in the future. But thank you so much for making time. I know you're in your darkened room, uh, the Prince of Darkness, writing music like uh, the what, what was that film, the um, Phantom of the Paradise. That's it. That sort of thing. Yes, I am. Yes, yeah, that's who you are. Um, so I'll see you on Friday. And, yeah. And uh, actually, it won't mean anything to the people who are listening to the podcast because we're recording this mid-November. But um, this is Christmas. Should we wish, wish everybody a Merry Christmas, I suppose, shouldn't we? Yeah. I, I'd like to wish everyone out there in Electronically Yours Land a very Merry Christmas. Mr. Gregory for you. What a dude. Uh, and like, it's a cliche, but like a fine wine is improving with age. He literally is a much better singer now than he's ever been, technically speaking. 
His voice is richer, rounder, more varied. It's got more range. Um, it's more under control um, as an instrument. And his stagecraft is, you know, amazing. He can hold an audience um, like the best of them. And uh, as he says in the in the um, in the interview we just did, he, his the biggest compliment he ever got is that um, David Bowie heard what he'd done with Holy Holy and he was loving it and um, makes us very happy. Time for some more emails. This is John Jeff Ungar. Hello, Martin. Top marks for hosting such a sterling podcast. Your interviews are outstanding. I'm streaming the episodes as fast as you can put them out. Each one an absolute gem. What a rare privilege is indeed to hear you and your amazing guests, all pioneers, luminaries of electronic music, yourself included, talking with such warmth and candour about the art and craft of music production during those early, heady, experimental DIY decades. DIY DIY decades of the 70s and 80s that revolutionised popular music following the introduction of the synthesizer. Your chats with Midgeur and Chris Watson are amongst my personal favourites. That's interesting. I've also had a great time sharing your podcast with my wife, Mara Katria, who is herself working on a new album with the lads from Modern English. And speaking of which, I believe Mick Conroy, the bassist from Modern English, would make a smashing guest. He's currently formed a new band with members of Lush Moost and Lush Moost, not Moost, Moose and Elastica called Piroshka. Good name. Mix a congenial bloke from Colchester who's comfortable discussing the vital. What's wrong with me today? The Viking ship burial at Sutton Hoo, near where he lives now in Houseboat, as he is a seasoned musician and alum of 4AD Records. He was heavily involved in the recording and production of Modern English's 2016 self-released album Take Me to the Trees, along with his close friend and colleague, the late Martin Young of Colourbox and Mars. Cheers. That's J. Jeff Ungar from State College, Pennsylvania, US of A. Anyway, how is everyone? It's Christmas. It's Christmas time. There's no need to be afraid. Well, it might be better, next year might be better than the last couple of years, which have been awful. Um, I hope, I wish health and happiness and a relief from the existential dread (laughs) that we've all had uh, in the last couple of years uh, for everyone. And I really genuinely hope that everyone who's listening to this podcast, that... um, We've provided a little bit of light relief to to the um, worry that everybody's been subject to. And uh, we're going to carry on doing it. I'm going to carry on doing it as long as I feel motivated to do so. Speaking of which, if you want to contribute in some small financial way uh, and join our community on Patreon, patreon.com slash electronicallyhours, all one word, um, for the price of a cup of coffee or a pint of beer, uh, uh, per month, you can help uh, sustain this as a free and independent podcast for everyone. Uh, so if you can afford it, I'd like you to consider it. It'd be great because uh, it costs me money to do these podcasts um, and over a period of time, many thousands actually, uh, it'd be nice if it could break even. So if you have any idea about that and you want to help please do. Uh, or you can also contact me 
It's a bit of a community on Patreon as well. You know, you have more direct contact with me via email. But whatever happens, you can contact me on uh, electronicallymartin, that's martin with a Y, at gmail.com. If you have any comments about the show, praises, grumbles, ideas for sections, ideas for guests, um, stories, try and keep them as concise as possible because I'm going to try and read a whole bunch of them, more of them out over the Christmas period. Um, and try and get a bit more up to date. We've fallen behind a bit on the emails. Um, So I apologise for that if I've not responded to you, because the idea was I was going to respond to most of them online. uh, Sorry, on on the podcast. Big shout-out to SJM Concerts for continuing to support the podcast Uh, sponsor the podcast um they're a great company they represent a load of uh great artists in this country and putting on concerts we all need entertainment nowadays and um simon moran who's the originator um is head of sjm concerts thank you so much for sponsoring this podcast we really really appreciate it thank you um got a special treat for you Here is a version of a very special Christmas tune that both myself and Glenn love, which is um, based on the Bing Crosby and David Bowie version of Little Drummer Boy. Merry Christmas and a Happy New Year. Finest gifts we bring Ra-ba-bum-bum 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 Peace on earth Can it be And years from now Perhaps we'll see I'll see the Yeah. 